0: Welcome to Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. Grab a coffee, a notebook, and pen, and enjoy the conversation with today's
1: guest, Dr. James Ring. James, you're very welcome to the podcast. asked me to get involved. James, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what kind of a childhood that was.
0: I suppose it's very normal, I suppose, as my childhood. I grew up in Limerick City. Um, It's a right in the centre of the city called the King's Island, so that's where I spent pretty much all of my early days. Um, Before I finished, I suppose, college and then went up up to Dublin and lived in Cork for a while. So I was always in Ireland, really. Um. Well, it was very, mm. very, it was a very happy childhood, really. Like, you know, so there's no no drama or, or anything like that to report. Myself, I had two brothers. Um, I think it was kind of a very simple life, really. Like you know, we didn't have a huge amount of money or anything like that, kind of stuff going on. So, you know, mm. holidays were spent spent in Ireland. I think I didn't leave Ireland till I was actually 19. Like, can you imagine? These days, I suppose kids probably wouldn't. Imagine that that would be real but that that's that mm. was my life and uh but i think like we were just happy never ne- you know we never needed anything we were always just happy and i think that was when i look back on growing up in limerick it was
1: a uh, it, it's good memories happy memories yeah was there anything in your your early days that might have signaled who you are today or, or the the business you've gone into
0: um i think I, well, I think I, the part of the world that I'm from is is a fairly working class part of, of, of Ireland, part of Limerick, whatever. And I suppose the ambition of people in, in these communities can sometimes not be very high or maybe the aspirations aren't high because you don't see role models. Now, I, I, it's not that I had a, a family of professionals or anything like that. I was, that wasn't this. But I think what I had was people in my family who probably believed in me probably more than i believed in myself you know and said to you 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 can do this you can kind of do whatever you want you know didn't know what i wanted at an early age it probably took me a long time to work that out but it was the kind of idea that you know for example college wasn't in my world when i was growing up you know people that i grew up with weren't thinking about that nobody in my family had really done it you know I think I was the first generation where uh, certainly some of my cousins were starting to look at college and, and, you know, so it was starting to come into our world. I suppose the Celtic Tiger was kicking into Ireland. So Ireland was evolving into a different thing. But I certainly had, in particular, my grandparents uh, were very, very supportive. And I think they probably just saw Ireland. I think what was in their head was they saw the transition of Ireland, the real transition from their opportunities, which were null and void, as you could imagine back in those days, Mm. they now saw their grandkids with probably been presented with opportunities. I think it would be they probably saw someone who probably had a bit more drive in him than than maybe some would have had, you know. I didn't, I don't think I was a very exceptionally clever child or anything like that. I just probably had a bit of ambition, drive to work hard and whatnot and they encouraged that. Um, and then I had parents, and it was very interesting, when I think about my parents' style, they never pressured me ever into yeah you have to do this, you have to study, you have to, you know, they kind of left me to it. And yes, they'd kind of make sure the homework was done and all that type, like that normal parenting stuff. But I never felt pressure on me that I had to achieve X, Y, or Z. And that probably made life a lot easier for me then.
1: I I think you've answered the question I was going to ask you, which was, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Because I can see on one side uh, a parental expectation can 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 create a, a defined outcome but sometimes that can be the wrong outcome because the expectation isn't aligned with the child's best interest either yeah. so I, c- I can probably see it from both sides what I'm really curious about is you said that college wasn't on your horizon and this very this resonates quite strongly with me and there was no real expectation and certainly there was no family members that had carved out a path no. uh, through what would now be traditional Uh, third-level channels. So stepping outside of that, that's extraordinary. I think people underestimate what it takes to do. And I don't mean just courage. It's probably an element of that. But just an element of self-awareness, an element of decision-making. That Because it's so easy as a kid to just go along with the status quo and go along with the expectations of our environment. To step out of that and make a decision. And say, okay, I'm going to do this. That that's that's extraordinary. I was curious to know where that comes from. Um, well, I, I think a lot of it was
0: I had this, look. A lot of it was I had very good friends, so I didn't fall mm. in with the wrong crowd. And that that could be quite easy um, in certain parts of town. That's very easy. In all parts of town, it's easy, but in certain parts of town, it's very easy. So I was lucky that I had some really good mates. And actually, they all went on. To college all of us so it was kind of a gang of us so that, I suppose you had that peer network Paul which made it, it easier that you weren't the outlier Um that was mm. one thing I suppose the other side of it was as I said the encouragement I got from my within my family circle anyway to to do it and I know I, and I, I wasn't all it, it wasn't consistent I think other people probably thought at certain times just go get a job after college you know contribute towards the household that I know that was there, and I, I know, and I know there was financial pressure um, on my family at that time as well. But ultimately, the, the support they gave allowed it to happen. So I suppose that's the, that. There are the two things. Outside of that, I don't know if there was ever. I don't remember it, there being a kind of a, a moment where a switch went on. And I said, "I'm going to college." I don't remember that. I just think it, it became mm-hmm. inevitable that I was going to because I had probably some level of intelligence that would allow me in the that points race to get to yeah. wherever, and then. Everything else after that just kind of it just happened. I suppose that's that's what ha- that's really how it all.
1: Yeah. and you said something I think is extremely pop- important, particularly if you're a parent, which is the power of your children's peers and their influence no. that they have, and that you can give them all the advice in the world. Their, the influence their their friends have has way more impact on them than anything you as a parent can say or do. Or between, yeah. And to have them choose wisely uh, in their friend set is its just so so powerful. Right. Curious, because I, I know you're in the sustainability, yeah. but I, I don't know if it's even framed that way, so perhaps you can correct yeah. me, the business. Um, talk to me about college, your experience, and how maybe that framed, if it did it, indeed, um, influence your choice of business and, and how you've gotten to where you are.
0: Again, my my path to, to today is not, there was no kind of plan. You know, it genuinely wasn't. There was no kind of, here's a number of milestones that are going to happen over the next number of years. I got into environmental science in the 90s, and uh, I studied that in university. And that's when environmental science back then wasn't the glamorous thing that it is today, you know, where everyone's talking about it in terms uh-huh. of sustainability and ESG. When I was doing it, I was a tree hugger. Now, I wasn't doing it because I had any major uh love or drive to save the world that wasn't it i just i just was interested in science and i was very interested in the environment just more about the natural world it was just a type of thing like that i suppose in some dark or some strange corner of my head i probably thought i could probably do what attenborough does that's probably what the dream job was back then you know whatever that didn't obviously happen um He's mm. still going. He's ninety-seven today. Actually, I just realised. He's so he's still he's still going. He won't. Uh, he will give incredible you incredible man. But I, I I did environmental science for 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 obviously did the degree in it, and then I did a doctorate in environmental chemistry. And again, that was just I think with the doctorate it was just saying to myself, okay, let's challenge yourself to see can you do this. That, that it really yeah. was that. Mm. Right? I didn't really, I wasn't interested in, in the doctor title. I wasn't interested in impressing anybody. I just wanted to see, could I do it for myself? and thankfully that worked out well. But at the end of it, it was a strange reality for me because after studying science for nine years, I didn't want to work in a lab. And in Ireland, really all you had is lab based jobs. And, and, they're, and I wouldn't say they're high end. I mean, they're quality control, quality assurance. A lot of them are those type of jobs. And that's a lot of repetition, I and that, that wouldn't have challenged me enough in, in in it, and I don't want to be disrespectful in, in any way to that career, but for, from a mm-hmm. personal perspective, it wouldn't have worked for me. So at the end of nine years of science, and then you realize you don't really want to work in a lab, you're kind of left at a bit of a crossroads.
1: But I was lucky yeah. at
0: the time, I got a job in IBEC in the business side of the pharma industry. So now I'm in pharma chemical and in IBEC, and I'm seeing the science industry, the, the pharma industry, which is... A hugely important industry in, in the Irish context, in terms of the amount of exports that comes out of this country from the pharma world, biopharma world, as it's probably better known now, is off the charts. It's about it's about, it's, I think it's about nearly fifty percent of the exports come from that. So hugely important, and I got to see it from the different side. So whereas nearly all of my classmates and colleagues uh, went into the lab side of it, I found myself on the other side of it. And at a young age, I was sitting there with CEOs and MDs of these big brands. And it was a real learning curve. You know, I was 26, 27 type of age and you're listening, you're sitting in a room listening to how these people and watching how these people operate. Bad and thankfully I had the gumption to keep my mouth shut and listen to what how it works. And, and it was really, I got really interested in, in business because of that then I could see what they were trying yeah. to do I could see what was motivating these people you know there's an impression that's always about money and money and money but actually when you get to know the people behind it yes obviously money is important i mean their businesses are there to make profits but you realize these people are very motivated by trying to do genuine positive things in society and in particular pharma industry gets a lot of bad press because of the profits it makes etc etc but imagine a world without it and then it's a very different world when we when we when we wouldn't have medicine to treat our ailments so we have to look at it in a kind of a balance sheet. but i got where's a bit of where's the light Go
1: sorry james i was going to ask you i beg your pardon i could have crossed you please continue i have a question about that though i'd, I'd be curious to get your take on yeah, it
0: yeah I, I guess i just got a bit of advice then um from some of those people who said to me look just maybe you should study business because it looks like you're going to spend more time in that side of the world if you're not going back into the lab well your qualifications well, you know they're not going to really apply so i did i went back and did an mba and um and that changed everything for me actually it changed completely how i thought yeah. because i was taught all of us that studied science or engineering are taught the world is black and white and you know paul that the yeah. world isn't black and white it's very gray and when you go into the world of humanities i initially struggled because what do you what do you mean there's more than one right answer you know that was that didn't work in my head but eventually you get to learn. The grayness of people and the the emotion of people and and that type of of thing yeah and i I suppose i just since then i've stayed in in that world of business and and got into the consulting stuff later you know that's my most
1: recent role okay and there's another question that pops into my head as you talk about that which is around because to me science is also a field of discovery where you go in not knowing the answers and i'm wondering how much of it is the way it's taught is to say there is this science versus science is a discipline of discovery and elimination rather than certainty.
0: I, I, I think you have it on the nail. That's, that's what I meant when I said about I'd be bored in the Irish context because you're right. That is what science is supposed to do, right? Is It's supposed to help you think through the possibilities that are there in, in society or in the world. And then you... You, you, like that's, like when you're doing a PhD or a master's, when you're in the research side of it, that is exactly what you're doing. It's trial and error, and sometimes it doesn't work. But that's not a negative. That's a positive. That means you tried it, it didn't work. You, you know, and now you try something else, and eventually you might find the answer that you were looking for, or you mightn't. And it's science yep. builds on that. But what happens in, in the Irish context is we train people for what the industry needs. And what the industry needs is pe- a lot of people in QA, QC. A lot of And whilst it's evolving a little bit and we're starting to see more research coming into the Irish context that we didn't see 20 years ago when I was doing it, I still think that the real research and development, that real critical thinking, that analysis, that, that pushing the boundaries is not really done in Ireland. It's probably done more so in places like the US, those type of, of worlds. So if you were a scientist over there... The opportunities to do exactly what you were talking about there in terms of pushing the boundaries i think there'll mm. be far more of them over there that's not to say ireland isn't mm. doing it but i think we're, we're we were playing a bit of catch-up pot
1: sounds to me that you're attracted to uh work that has a, a say a novelty factor that there's an uncertainty right. there's a process of discovery there's a newness about it how does that manifest itself first of all is that true and secondly if it is how does that manifest itself in other aspects of your life where you seek out um, the unknown. I think it
0: probably is true. I didn't really sit down and think of it that way until you said it, but it it, it is that. I mean, my job, why I I love what I do now with Ingenium is because it's all problem solving. So every client that comes into you comes in with a different problem. And and, And because they're coming to you firstly, they have a problem, right? So that's the first side of it. And then you have to try and work with them to try and solve the problem. And a lot of it is is you go you do go back into your scientific world your scientific training even though you're in a a humanities type of environment but you're going back because like take strategy when we're we're doing strategy with with clients a lot of times management teams senior management teams will kind of think they know best because they're in the world for so long and they're so experienced but as you know that brings biases you are with them, and and they don't want to hear another opinion. Whereas what they really need is to say, okay, you might be right, but let's see what the data is showing us out there. So you do internal and external analysis, and then you present that data, and that might confirm or it might dismiss some of the opinions that are at the senior table. But that's the beauty of it. And then you're working through the process. So you're bringing some kind of scientific rigor to it to try and solve these problems. And And I think that's probably the part of my role that I love the most. It's never boring, and it's never the same. And every time I have a new client, it's just going to be a whole different way of thinking. And and I I I, that I get often get kind of slagged inside and work about this by my own staff, at the cheek of them. Whereas I'm always reading, trying to read new books, trying to understand latest evolutions because I have to, because I have to. Because the world is changing. The companies that we are working with are constantly evolving. <laughs> the the market surrender is evolving. So I'm always pushing the team in here in Ingenium to learn. Keep learning, keep evolving your own knowledge, because yeah. you're going to get a problem that you don't know. You know, so it's all about that. In terms of the rest of my life, I don't know if I apply it to everything. To be honest, Paul, I like to come home demons evenings and turn off my brain. So I don't really want to be challenged right. too much at home. Um, yeah, You know, fair. my small lady probably challenges me more than anyone. You know, she's a, a two-year-old that kind of, you know, keeps me on my toes. But outside of that, I just like yeah. to turn off the brain and, and, and relax and and I suppose my outside of work stuff is really revolves around still trying to pretend I'm I'm still able to play football in my forties and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and played a bit of music with the lads. So it's it's really kind of it, I I I think I have a, a yeah. clear boundary between work and home. Yeah. They're very different things.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting because football and music are two very they're very much about uh, mental oh. space oh. shut down kind of sp- space yeah. activities. But that's a good thing because that says you're getting that from a work perspective. If you weren't getting it at work, you'd probably then go to seek it elsewhere. Um, yeah, I think that's been in,
0: that's what happened in previous roles for me is that I, fe- I felt that in, in previous roles, there was a challenge with each role. You know, one was a complete restructure of an organization that was in serious financial difficulty. The other one was an organization that had just lost its way, that needed to be kind of brought back to life. But I once, did, once that challenge was dealt with, well, then what am I doing? I'm just sitting in the seat then mm. and taking a salary. And that's boring. So that's why it's time to move on. And with Ingenium, it's not like that. There's an awful lot of challenges left ahead of me. And it, and it's not always internal mm. challenges. As I said, the majority of them are client challenges that you're trying to work with.
1: I'd, I'd love to talk to you in a moment about what, the client challenge- why they come to you in the first place what what are they struggling mm-hmm. with what's the concern the issue before I do that as as more of a curiosity than anything else is how often do meetings with new clients start when they lean over the table and they say to you look James, here's what you need to understand about us. Our business is different
0: <laughs> um yeah you do you do get that a bit or or some of them will come to you and say you need to understand the way our world works. And, I, and you have to respect yeah. a bit of that, right? Because of course it is. And, yeah. you know, I'm like, yeah. like, we have clients in very diverse industries from financial services to energy, you know, health. And I don't know those worlds in the sense of I, I'm not from them. So I, I have to remain somewhat agnostic to it. So you have to respect yeah. the nuances of their world are different uh, and I may not understand it. But that's not what I'm there to do. Uh, what I'm trying to do is, challenge the thinking that's at the table so what i really watch out for is when a ceo if a ceo came to me and said you need to listen to me that would be a a very big flag straight away because what that would say to me is i know best and you're just gonna i'm gonna go through a process and you're gonna just you're just gonna do what i tell you right that won't work with us because we have to challenge the ceo and all the c-suite to just step step back park the biases a while just think and let me look let me show you some data let me show you some uh, fresh ideas challenge thinking of the c suite and let's see what happens and and in fairness you know yourself paul there's such things as good clients and bad clients and good yeah. clients and and you can, and you know the difference very early on and the good clients will actually do that and thankfully we've been lucky that yeah. people have come to us have come with a level of humility to say okay let's see what we can do and what what's what's very good about them is not that ingenium tells them the way their world should be we do data analysis etc we'll challenge their thinking with some of our ideas that we would have known or we would have seen from previous engagements but our big thing is a process that actually gets them to listen to their team and pull pull the data Pull the the, the best assets any company has as you know paul is their people the knowledge yeah. the experience they bring their level of understanding but in a lot of situations they're not listened to. So my job, or Ingenium's job, is to try and go down the levels, pull out the, the, the key information, because as you know, the, more lo- the lower down the levels you go, the more holes they see in the plan, because they're the ones delivering yeah. the plan. So up high, you're kind of, you can be a little bit theoretical and say, get this done. But the, the lads and ladies at the, at, at, at the lower levels know that, okay, that sounds lovely at the top, yeah. but there's gaps yeah. at the bottom. And if we can identify those gaps, that's how good strategy works. So a lot of our work is spent trying to sit down with the lower levels and tell us what's what's not working in this broad area that we're looking at, and then we bring that back to the sweet suite, suite and get them to listen to what those people are saying.
1: So, but I'm curious to know what is the particular issue challenge. What does the, your prospect observe that? It, that makes them pick up the phone and call you? What is it that they see in their business?
0: Well, most of them, oh, sorry, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. One is a lot of, a lot of the, the, the sweet spot client for us is, is clients that are probably somewhere between 100 and 500 million of revenue, somewhere in that bandwidth, and they want to grow. And, and growth, is, you know, in particular, there's a lot of industries that have lots of growth potential. But the way, we've, the way we do strategy in Ingenium is it's broken into three categories. The objectives of a strategy, the, the structure of the strategy is broken into three dimensions. The first one is growth in current markets, which is, you know, doing more of what we already do. That usually is geographical right. spread. It's maybe taking some of the skills that you have and putting them into new industries that, that will have, have similar needs to the skills you have. Then there's there's you know future markets or, or other markets and that's that's basically usually an acquisition type of strategy, in terms of you know going into new completely new industries that you don't have a foothold in. Um, yes, you might have a certain skill set, but you might not have it all. So you probably have to acquire skill, or you might be able to grow it organically. But the third part and it, it never gets the headlines because it's not glamorous, and the shareholders probably don't want to see it because it doesn't, or don't want to really look at it because it doesn't show money. I call them as growth enablers. So no strategy can happen without the enablers. And the enablers are things like talent development, operational excellence, IT and systems, you know, all that type of stuff. So the functions that make a business work. And often what you find is companies are so focused on growth and capturing market share, they forget sometimes that they have to develop the internal mechanisms of the organization. So they have to develop, the, have the succession plans in terms of getting the next generation leaders to come up and step up. As the company grows, is there people that can can move into those roles or will they have to bring them in? You know, often processes are, are always behind the curve. So young innovative companies don't have a lot of processes and as they mature, they bring in processes. So often the processes are not up the pace of where the company currently is. So there's always a bit of a catch-up going on. So as, as a company evolves, you have to bring it. Take something like it, as simple as simple as a strategic HR management system. So that you don't need one when you've got 10 employees. When you've got 150 employees, you probably start to have to start thinking about how am I managing this. So it's that type mm. of stuff. So that yeah. is often what needs to be identified in the strategy. And in fact, a, a recent strategy with a, with a client that's doing really well. When we went through it with them, there was no, all the emphasis of the strategy became on the growth of neighbors. They were so busy in terms of the markets they were in. They didn't need a strategy to help them drive sales. They were getting so much of it. All of their strategy focused on how do we increase capacity to take on more. So it all became about the enablers. That's, that's, yeah, that's what we see a lot.
1: If you weren't doing what you're doing today, if you decided to retire in the morning, what would you do with your life? Oh, I, I don't I don't know. Um, do
0: you know what? I, I probably still... I like the world I'm in, if I'm honest. I like the world I'm in, and I, I like it because it's so... It's difficult. This is a hard world that I'm in, because clients mm-hmm. are demanding, problems are complex. And if you get it wrong, you know, it can, it can cause a lot of strife. But what is a real motivation for me is, genuinely, I love when a client comes in that has real problems. It's one thing having a client comes in that's, that's flying and they're growing, and, you know, they don't really need your help. Yes, they want the process to, you know, structure conversations within the company and whatnot. We can help them do that. And sometimes we can throw grenades that the management team don't want to throw. But I love it when a company isn't flying. And then they come in and they say, we need some help. We know there's kind of latent ability in this company, but we don't know how to unlock it. That's the real challenge. And I've, uh, there's, I remember one company, I'm obviously not going to name the company, but... They, were, they had 3,000 staff, and they were struggling. Really, it was looking like this is you know, on dodgy ground. And I see that company now five years later, and they're flying. Now, I'm not saying Ingenium solved the problems, but what we could do was bring a process to help them on, you know, to unlock that, that knowledge within the company, to try and put structure and focus, and then and let, let people within the company take ownership. So it wasn't just the CEO or the C-suite. We found a mechanism by which there was an awful lot of people bought into saving this company and now i see them today yeah. and they're absolutely it's night and day so if you ask yeah. like when you ask the question
1: what would i do if i wasn't doing this i'd probably still do this and i spare in particular like, so you're, you you mentioned at the beginning what's that i don't know if we had recorded at the time that that you're a fan of david attenborough and that he is 97 today yeah. um And most of his best, not most, a lot of his best work was done when he was in his 70s and 80s. That sounds like you you have that kind of in mind as well, that retirement is an old concept, that it's really about what gives me a buzz, what gives me a sense of achievement, a sense of accomplishment. And what you're saying is that what you're doing currently anyway at the moment is giving you that and therefore you can't envisage why you'd change that.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd love to get Ingenium to a stage... I mean, th- this might sound odd, but I'd love to get a genium to a level where I don't want to be the CEO anymore, right? Mm. Because I do value, and this is important I think, Paul, in, in, in my world work-life balance matters a lot to me so I'm not mm. here I'm not, you know, working to. Uh, I'm not living to work I, I, I do probably have more of a work-to-live type of mentality. <laughs> I believe we should work hard in the, in the hours that we're actually supposed to be in here and then we should turn off and relax and do whatever makes us happy outside of it. And I, will, yeah. I don't think I will ever change. I've never changed and I never will. I think as, as, as Genium evolves and becomes bigger and bigger, it will get to a level where I think as the CEO, I won't have the work-life balance that I want. And at that point, yeah. I will leave the seat and give it to somebody else right. who will drive it on. And at that moment, what I'd love to do then is become a full-time, just a consultant within the company. And work on projects. And as you said, as I get older, you know, and I suppose I'm in my forties now, and I, you know, retirement isn't as far off as it as it used to appear to me before. I, I'm not going to retire early because yeah. I don't play golf and I'm not into that kind of sitting around kind of stuff. But I don't imagine I'll be working full time either at 65, you know. So what I would like to do yeah. is, as I get older, is find nice projects that I can get involved in to help organisations similar to what I'm doing today, but maybe not have the pressure of the CEO seat still on my shoulders at that stage.
1: Okay. Uh, I thought what we might do, James, is I'm going to go to our our question wheel and pull up a couple of questions maybe that we can take. These are random questions that I've got in here. There's 20 of them. I don't know what they are. You don't know what they are. And we'll take a couple of those. Uh, So let's see what the first one pops up. Uh, Here we go. If you had to write a book, what would it be about?
0: I've always said I'm gonna write a book and I've never been able to because my grasp on the English language is crap. But I think the, one, the thing I love, if it was in the kind of related to work, I think the thing I love is, um, I love the area of leadership and I've studied that an awful lot over the years. And I've seen, because of the, the, the nature of the roles I've been in since I was young, um, Yep. I've always watched and been around very senior leaders and seen how they operate and see what makes them tick. So I think I'd, I'd probably do some work on that. Okay. The other thing that I, that I might be slightly different to writing a book, but it would be a thesis. I often said okay. that when I do get to retirement age and when I am getting into that 65, 70 zone, I'd love to go back and do a PhD again, but this time I'm going to do it on economics. Something like that. So okay. it was something completely different to wow. the one I used uh, that I originally did. So I suppose there you are. That's
1: a book that I'd write. Something in economics. Okay. Now you said about your English. How many how many books on leadership do you think were actually written by the name on the front cover? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I
0: don't know. And I can tell you some of the leadership books I've read are weak uh, at the best uh, the of times. So I don't know the answer to
1: that one, but, yeah. but I wouldn't say. I, I I would imagine because I, I did this myself. I used a copywriter, so I would I wrote the what I wanted to say, the message I wanted to give, and then I used a copywriter to uh, add English right. <laughs> <laughs> make it sound engaging and, and readable. so yeah. I, I, and the reason I'm saying that is if there's a book in you, which I no doubt there is, there's no excuse not to writing one. All you need to do is just find yourself somebody who'll who'll take your words. And make them jump off the yeah. page, which is a, a, a skill set in itself. And you're right to recognize that it really is. When you see your own words reflected back to you by somebody who knows how to write, it's, it's uplifting mm-hmm. because it's almost as if there's this, there's this voice, there's this message, there's this need to say something on a topic and leadership is clearly yours but it can come out because you don't always have the right words you don't have the right way to say it but when you can partner with somebody who has that and then you hear your your internal dialogue reflected back to you it's it's incredible it's like looking in a mirror that makes you look beautiful yeah yeah i understand i I think you want to stare you want to stare in the mirror and kind of and and soak it up
0: and i I think that would be the only way i could do it because i i know i know what my limitations are and i that's that's one of them
1: yeah You are right. I remember I yeah. wrote an
0: article recently for the Irish Independent, and the editor obviously sent it back. My article was sent back to me, edited, and you. I get exactly yeah. what you mean. It just sounded. It sounded like me that got an a name that got an a name. He's leaving articulate
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That that could be a really interesting project. I'm really interested in because you you said you read a lot, and you've clearly read a lot of books on leadership. What would be the main theme of yours that would make a difference to others? What is it that you want to say?
0: Um, I, I think what I've noticed over the years is that I think, see, the, my, my whole philosophy is leadership is a word that you know and I know. Your, 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 pod, your podcast is called The Leadership Mindset. But the problem really? is that everybody, everybody's interpretation of that word is different. So mm. we all kind of know what it means, and we all have, but we all have variations on it, and that's because of our own internal biases. And it's it, the theory that it sits on is called implicit leadership theory, which is basically we're products of our environment, our genetics, and that makes us all view the world differently. And that's why you can mm. look at you and I can look at the same person, and you can think they're great, and I can think they're absolutely useless because they're not ticking. Mm. They're not ticking my implicit leadership theory, but they are ticking yours. And that also makes mm. leadership so difficult. Now that's the first thing, is trying to help people to understand that when they go on leadership courses or training, you shouldn't be going in with the mindset that this course is going to teach you how to be a good leader. What the course on leadership should do is challenge you to think about what type of leader do you want to be and be true yeah. to yourself, because you have to be authentic first. So that's the first side of it. The second piece would be focused on the idea of humility. So, if you look at the evolution of leadership theory from the 1800s which was the first one was called the great man theory and great man theory is because to be a leader back then you had to be a man and you had to be great and by great they meant rich so rich man theory is what it should have been called now that's why Mm. women had had to play catch up in the in the leadership space because for so long the great man theory dominated and that meant Mm. women weren't allowed to be in leadership positions now implicit leadership theory is showing us now that in modern society Actually, women will become stronger leaders than men because society's expectations on leadership is changing. It's changing to become Mm. much more... Society expects leaders to be more emotionally open and available, show more humility. Mm. Women do that more naturally than men, not because of any EQ, IQ kind of stuff, nothing got to do with that, simply because when you and I grew up, Paul, we grew up in a world where we were told, boys, don't cry, don't show your feelings and emotions. Women aren't given that same message. Now young young guys are, are being brought up with that uh, narrative being given to them that it is okay to show emotion. But in the workplace, the current batch of 20, 30-year-olds that are coming into the workplace at the moment expect leaders to behave like that, to show emotion, to be emotionally yeah. open and deal with emotion more effectively. But as you know, Paul, and I know, we might not always want to say it uh, and acknowledge it, but we have all been in a world where we much, men would kind of prefer to close the door and not deal with that emotion um, that's coming at you. So that's the second thing is understanding that the world is changing and that means the leadership style has to change and the strengths that women have are more suitable um, for the modern society so men have to learn those skills very quickly. The third piece, it, is, it hinges on the idea of compassion. Now, compassion is a word that's often misunderstood. A lot of people use the word empathy, okay? And I think it's misused. The word empathy is misused. So many people, like you go onto LinkedIn, everyone's talking about empathy, empathy, empathy. And I think actually the word should be compassion. I'll tell you why. Empathy to me is not always possible. Let me tell you, let me give an example, Paul. Can you empathize what it's like to be a pregnant woman? Of course no. you can't. So why then do we keep no. ramming empathy down people's throats? We live in a world where mm-hmm. as a as a white man, a white straight man, I can't empathise with an awful lot of with some people because I don't know what it was like. So for example, what was it like for to be a person that grew up in Africa who now lives in Ireland? I can't empathize. I can sit with them and I can listen to their story and try and understand the reality. What was it like for a, a gay man to come out? and tell his family, I don't know. Again, I have listened to people who told that story and I've tried to understand what that must be like in terms of the fear, etc. But to truly empathize, I don't believe I can. But what I can do is show compassion and show an understanding that whatever a person has to go through in their life, I need to recognize it, respect it, and try and understand it as best I can so yeah. I think that that's what modern leadership should be showing is that compassion and what I will say on compassion is that it often is seen as a weak kind of a word or a soft and it's gentle and it's tender actually I think compassion is a very very hard skill to master and I'll tell you why Paul imagine imagine I mean, what compassionate leadership is all about is making some tough decisions and you know that people are going to get hurt by it. For example, imagine having to make redundancies. Now you know mm. that you're going to put certain people out of a job. They're going to impact their family life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if it's done the right way, which is compassionate, w- would be you're going to make the redundancies, but you're going to do it in as gentle a way as possible. You're going to put supports around the people as best you can, kind of almost give them a cushion that they they, they fall easy. You might even commit to help them find a new job, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, go beyond what you're expected to do. That's compassionate leadership. Whereas poor leadership would be just saying, sorry, we're making job cuts, you're gone. That happens an awful lot, Paul. How many times do we see that in the news? People turn up to work and they go, we were just told we have no job. That's sh- shocking leadership in my, in my world. Whereas really good ones, I if, I had to, if a company made me do that, if I, was, if I was running a company and the company said, that's the plan, I'd, I'd walk out myself. Yeah. Because that is, would completely go against my philosophy on leadership.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you were watching Succession last night, but there was a scene in it where they were letting employees go, and it was exactly that. It was zero compassion. It was just basically you're all fired. Who wants to work for that? Um, I said, who wants to work for for that? Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, actually, on that, I wanted to talk to you because you talked about leadership and um, men of a certain age. And and I've been through this myself and I, you know, I had that with, I remember my father putting a chisel through his finger. He was a carpenter and it was just like big boys don't cry. And we had that going to CBS school where we were leathered and it was, you know, you would do anything but show them yeah. that you, you felt like crying. It seems like weakness. And in fact, it was almost as if one of your friends, if they did cry, you felt a little bit let down by them. It was like, it was just this mm. And in fact, uh, Pat Short and the other, they don't believe was, they did a fantastic sketch on that years ago. You know, a baby coming out of the womb and it was a male baby and it was as soon as it came out of the womb, it was like mm. it was this kind of bracing against the world, don't right. let it in. But I would suggest that, and I, this is clearly not universal, but that that has changed enormously, even with men of our age. If you've been on a particular journey, if you've looked it in the face and realized that actually holding everything in is not in your best interest, is not good for those right. around right. you. And, that, and, and being open about how you feel about things and confronting issues, it, it requires huge strength and it's a weakness to walk away. Um, now, I know that's, again... That's a very black and white statement. Sometimes we don't always have the words, and I don't know whether that's a gendered issue or not, or whether it's just a societal expectations that maybe women are more expressive. I don't know, but I would certainly think that that has changed enormously. Yeah, I would say, and I, it's for the I better. Would
0: change, I would say it's changing. I don't think it's changed, right? Right? And I, 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 yeah. I, even though in polite company you're not supposed to kind of say it, you know, you're saying, "Oh, it is," no, but it it hasn't. There are still pockets mm. where. This this old fashioned autocratic, sometimes chauvinistic style leadership still exists, and the yeah. the level the playing field isn't leveled yet. Paul, you know, in terms of men and women in the in the workforce, it's not leveled yet. I'll give you a simple example. How many golf classic teams do you see that have mixed teams? I've often been asked, "Would I play in a golf team a golf classic?" I don't play golf, so I always obviously say no. But I I had a, a few years ago, there was a person here, a girl who played for Ireland. And I used to say, I have a girl who played for Ireland. I'd want her in my golf team, you know, because you'll probably win the thing with her. Mm. Never asked her. It exists. This kind of, of, of stuff still exists in the workplace. And I think what I'm seeing, though, is the, the, the leaders now who are in that 40s bracket, we'll just say, take that as a general bracket. They have been, they're in a workplace where Twenty years ago, Paul, when I first went to the workplace, seniority was still very, very, very present in the workplace. I remember my first boss; I had to call him Mister. Now that wouldn't happen in this in today. I mean, if I told my staff they have to call me Mister Ring, they'd they'd probably laugh at me into my face, right? So I think what's happening yeah. is this genera- There's a transition going on at the moment, Paul. There are still people who are. There are people who we'll say coming to the end of their careers who probably are still living in some kind of old, older world of it's much more autocratic style, do what you're told. There's a generation coming through in the, in the 40s bracket who are dealing with that transition from, they may be reporting to somebody who's still living like that, but they don't behave like that to their colleagues. Hey. So they're kind of in there, they're like a buffer in the middle. And then what you'll see is by the time the, the 20 year olds come into the workplace, I think then you'll
1: see a very different world. I think that autocratic we got. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I have operated in the last few years in two very different worlds. So for a long time, perhaps the last 15 years, 20 years of it, was in the, what I would call the SaaS bubble. But really, if we reframe it in our conversation, it is that younger mindset. So it's the articles, the Salesforce, right. the Google, those companies. And... The, I, I, because I've, I've worked in there, you, you absorb your environment. And then only recently, in the last couple of months, I step back into that old world where you're dealing with business owners running small SME companies. <laughs> and I've noticed just around the table, uh, just a, there's a change, that, sorry, there's a tone in, in, in the language. And I don't think any of it comes from a malicious place. It's just... It's weird. i give you an example. There was one guy one day and he was talking about, he was looking for prospects. It was a networking uh, group and he was talking about ideal one is in a family situation where their father hands off their business to their son. Uh, I thought, whoa, That's, that just felt really weird. I probably wouldn't have noticed it before, but being sensitive to working in those organizations where you not alone would that be picked up you would actually be complained that would, that would, if if you were using that kind of gendered language it would be made it, it, it yeah it, it would be it would be i'm gonna say dealt with that's the, not the right term but it would be um addressed and there was other little things that even for example the golf classic you know again i'm not a golfer and, and, and I, I said this recently because they were organizing another golf outing and I, I wasn't even thinking of it from a gendered perspective. I was thinking of it from like, hey guys, what about those of us who don't play golf? We're, you know, I can't play, you do not want me on your team. Uh, and I have zero interest as well. But uh, what about some other activities? That you know and, and the goal of it was to get people together. It wasn't to exclude anybody. Oh. But it was an assumption Hey, everybody plays golf because we play yeah. golf, and I think that's it. I think it's opening up, and and I often think it's that it's it, travel helps. And if you've worked abroad or if you've worked with different demographics, and that could be even in Ireland, as I said, going into those those uh, I, don't, I don't want to call them younger co- companies. That makes it crazy, but it's it's those country companies that wouldn't have existed twenty yeah. years ago. The LinkedIn's of this world, yeah, um, and and if you go in there and you work in there, you come out and you see the world differently. There's no question about it. And it's not something that you, that, that you go into a room and suddenly there's a light switched on. It's just, you absorb yeah. it. And so, yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from. I think a lot of it is, is I, I don't, I'm sure there's the autocratic element, but I think there's that bit in the middle. It's not, it's not coming from an autocratic place. It's not coming from a place of, of, of superiority. It's just, it's, it's just an assumption. This is how the world works. It's like everybody uses fax machines until we realize, God, that's an antiquated way of doing things. And I I think it's similar.
0: I think you're you're kind of going into the the, the world of the the company culture, which would determine how Mm. behaviors happen. And you're absolutely right. And also, you have to respect as well that there are some countries that companies work in where the culture is very different. So, for example, in Ireland, it is a very egalitarian country, Ireland, um, and we will challenge authority in this country. Now, that changes, as you oh. know, you didn't challenge authority 30, 40 years ago. We lived in a world that was dominated by, in Ireland, the church, etc. But then you go to oh. some countries in Southeast Asia where you don't challenge authority. Now, if you are an Irish person and you go over there and you, you're leading a team of people who are from that culture and you yeah. ask, has anyone got any problems with it? Nobody says anything. You probably just assume, well, there must be no problems So, But in their culture, they're not really encouraged to challenge leadership. So you have to be aware of the cultures that you're working in too. And I think what you're getting at there is there are certain industries that you know, the culture does determine behavior. I'll give you a very simple example of that. A lot of the professional services world, they wear suits because that's what you do. And you wear a tie and that's yeah. it. Now, that's, not, that's, that's just something that's passed down in the culture of the organization. You notice during COVID, that started to transition quite a lot. A lot of the professional services, a very good friend of mine is a partner in PwC, a managing partner of pwc and i used to give him an awful slag and i said you'll be found dated in your bed in a tie because he would always be wearing his, his shirt and tie and now he's gone around and he hasn't worn one unless he is a, a very formal being and like we laugh now about that ch- that transition that he's seen in a in an organization as serious as i suppose as pwc type of organization would be
1: yeah yeah i'm conscious of time uh, james so a couple of quick questions if you were uh, stranded on a desert island and you couldn't take anybody, you can only take a th- one thing with you, what would it be? You don't know, what, you don't know if you, if or when you're ever going to be rescued.
0: I'd probably bring a guitar, so, because then I could just sing away okay. and keep myself somewhat entertained. Whereas if I said i I bring a book, I'd probably get bored of reading the same book. But with a guitar, I could sing kind of anything I wanted.
1: Very, very practical. I like it. Entertaining and practical. You've ticked both boxes. I like that. I like that. Um, Your house is burning down and your family are safe. Any pets are safe. Your computer and your phone obviously are safe. Um, And you've only time to run back in and rescue one item. What would it be and why? Uh,
0: Do you know what? I, I actually probably would take my thesis my PhD I would and I know that might sound a bit odd but I'll tell you why because that was the biggest challenge I set myself I mean think about it, what I said in terms of my background and my upbringing the idea of oh, going yeah. to college was unusual but to get to level oh, yeah. 10 is something that I'm very very proud of I mean, and I when I look yeah. at that thesis I say to myself I wonder if you said to the 18 year old James he's going to write this he wouldn't have he definitely wouldn't have believed you and I think, mm-hmm. and I, I often, I always say there was nothing special about me, Paul. And if I can do it, someone else from mm-hmm. that kind of background can do it. No problem. They just need a bit of support mm-hmm. and a bit of drive and determination. So that to me is kind of, mm-hmm. it's something I, 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 am proud of. So yeah, that one.
1: Yeah. And rightly so. And so it's not the content of the thesis. It's the thesis itself as, and what it represents it's for you. The symbol. You. Yeah. The symbol. Okay. Um final question. When your time on this planet is done and somebody writes a book about your life, how would you like the title of it to be?
0: Um title. I don't know. I think from a if it was about me in as a as a as a boss or running a company, I think I think he, just, he was fair. Just
1: about you. Strip away anything to do with
0: um, work. I, I just think then it's just, you know what, Paul? Genuinely, I just think he was sound. I think it's as simple as that. I, just, I don't take myself too seriously. Yeah. and I, I try and not take life too seriously. And I hope that when people are in my company, they enjoy being in my company. And, and that would be good enough for me. I don't really care about being remembered as a great businessman or any of that kind of stuff. No interest. I'm not going to be – I I was hoping as a kid I'd be remembered as a great footballer, probably play for Liverpool. That, obviously, dream never happened. So I can live with that kind of disappointment. So I think
1: just a decent guy is probably enough for me. Okay. Dr. James Ring, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. Pleasure, Paul.